Hello everybody, this is Keith Pannell, welcoming you to a new program on KTEP. This is a program that's going to focus very much upon the faculty and the staff at the University of Texas at El Paso. So it's called We Are UT El Paso. And so when you're going to start a vision like this, you're going to start somewhere. And I thought, well, we better start at the top. So today, in the inaugural program for this series, we're going to be talking to Dr. Heather Wilson. She's our president. And Heather Wilson, welcome to We Are UT El Paso. Keith, wonderful to be with you. Good. I'm glad to hear that because I want you relaxed and I want the people out there to get an idea of who is Heather Wilson. Mm. So before we get into your role as president, which is not one that I would have ever wanted to do, <laughs> all right, it's a tough job. Um, let's start with Heather Wilson as a young girl. Yeah. What did you think you wanted to do? Did you think you wanted to do anything? How did you develop? Well, I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire. I, my grandparents were immigrants. My, my grandfather and grandmother came to America from Scotland after the First World War. And, uh, and they settled in New England. And my mother's family were Irish immigrants. Um, they came here mostly after the potato famine. So, so immigrants to the to the United States and to New England and grew up in a very small town. And nobody in my family had ever been to college before. But for some reason, I just knew that's what I was going to do. And I don't know where that idea came from, but I was convinced of it even when I was very young. And then um, my father died when I was quite young. I was in second grade, and he was killed in a car accident coming home from work. He was a, he was a pilot. My grandfather was also a pilot. My grandfather was one of the first, one of the first flyers in the RAF in 1918. Yeah, and well, my father was in the Royal Air Force during the war. Yeah. And uh, but he was a liaison officer to the United States Air Force. So it's interesting. It was. Um, but anyway, carry on. So, I grew up around aviators, and when I was a junior in high school, they opened the Air Force Academy to women. And that looked kind of interesting. And I, I, um, I went to see my grandfather, who was still alive when I was in high school, and I told him uh, that I was thinking about this Air Force Academy thing. And so, so, you know, he had flown in two world wars, one for the RAF and the second for the American Expeditionary Force, which became the, the Civil Air Patrol after the Second World War in the United States and had been a barnstormer and opened up airports all around New England tens of thousands of flying hours. And he had two sons and five grandsons and me. <laughs> and, uh, and I was the one who wanted to do You're this Air Force Academy thing. So, um, but he had flown with some women in World War II. He had flown with the wasps and uh, towed targets with them and things and, and, uh, and then knew some women in the Civil Air Patrol. And as he said at the time, he said, yeah, they were pretty good sticks. In other words, they were pretty good pilots, so he thought that'd be okay. So with his blessing and a full-ride scholarship, I became the first person in my family to go to college, and I got a one-way ticket to the United States Air Force Academy. And, and it's interesting because, you know, you say they were both pilots, and so today you would not find very many pilots that had not been to college. College no, has become my... a prerequisite for so many things that 50 years ago... You didn't need it. Well, maybe well, not but, 50, but 100. You know, my grandfather could use almost any tool. And he, was, he had an eighth-grade education and lied about his age and when he was 17 and got into the RAF. But he was one of the smartest people I knew. But he was hand-smart. 
And I remember when I was in high school, I, he, he used to come over sometimes after school and we'd play chess. And we finished playing chess one day and, uh, and I said, uh, I drew a curve on a piece of paper. And I, I was a senior in high school and I said, Grandpa, how would you find the area under that curve? And, and, it, and of course I was being kind of a smart, smart alecky kid in a way, showing off with my grandpa, but he, he said, well, I'd probably, and he still talked with a real brogue, I'd probably draw it on a graph and, and count the squares. And, uh, and then I showed him something new, and it was called calculus. And I showed him how you could find the area under the curve using calculus. And he was pretty impressed by that. What I remember about it is... And this was in high school. This was in high school. I was a senior in high school taking calculus. It was the first time in my life that I realized I had a tool that my grandfather didn't have. And he had started flying shortly after the Wright brothers, but he had lived to see a man walk on the moon. And the world had changed. And what... uh, the aircraft that he flew were wood and fabric rickety things. Um, and my father flew, um, flew uh, he was a mechanic in the Air Force and then, uh, then flew commercial aviation. But you know, he flew DC-7s, I think, was his most advanced aircraft. So, so, um, but when I went into the Air Force, you know, they had just brought in this thing called the F-16 fighter and it didn't, couldn't fly without a computer, you know? Right. So, so that's what you flew. I did not fly an F-16, no. Oh. Um, I, I've, flown in, I've now flown in the back of an F-16, but, but um, I ended up not going to pilot training. I had a slot to go to pilot training, but I uh. got a scholarship to go to graduate school. But I guess that realization that I needed more education than my father or my grandfather had, and it's also true for my children and my grandchildren. Oh. Uh, the world has changed. So tell me then, when you, you go to the Air Force Academy, mm-hmm. you graduate, do you automatically have to spend time in the Air Force after? Yes, yeah. So how long were you, and what did you do? So I was a, I was served as an officer for seven years, I guess. Um, but I, they, first I went to graduate school. I, I earned a scholarship mostly because a faculty member was teaching me computer science that I seemed to have an affinity for. And he said, you know, if you weren't so busy doing all these other things, you could apply for this scholarship. And I did, and it was called the Rhodes, and I didn't know what it was. But he said I couldn't do it. So I at least had to look into what it was he thought I couldn't do. And so I walked into this office. There was a woman who worked there. Her name was Fern Kenyon, and she was a, used to be the department secretary, but they put her in an office to help students learn about these scholarship things and she told me to sit over there and look in that notebook and see what I thought and so I, I applied and and uh, I earned a Rhodes Scholarship to do my graduate studies in England. Yeah, right, in Oxford to be precise. So, I mean, that that's that's a charmed progression. I know, I right? live a blessed life. <laughs> I mean, you worked very hard for all this, but I mean, it's a, it's uh, yeah, a lovely I... story. And, and so, after... Well, let's let's stick at Oxford for a moment. Yeah. Uh, because then you came back and you got into politics. You got into being Air Force Secretary. My entire life is a diversion from its planned course. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you back on course? Well, is I'm this where I part of be. the plan? Well, I guess it's when I was, you know, uh, when I was young, I thought I wanted to be an experimental test pilot or something. Yeah, well, and, didn't and, we uh, all? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but doors opened that I didn't even know were there. Yeah. And well. So many doors have opened, some have closed, you've shut them behind you, yeah. and presumably others maybe not 
completely closed. Mm-hmm. But let, let's talk about you're now here as mm-hmm. a president of a university, yeah. a big university, a major university now, mm-hmm. uh, with a big budget for research. And you're training for that. You were also a president at, is it North Dakota University? South Dakota. South, South, Dakota, South Dakota School of Mines, yeah. Right. Uh, engineering. And, but that, that's a very small... About 2,500 students, but oh, all uh, engineers and sciences. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it's just a real special focus. Yeah. Is that a good idea to have a university that only does science and engineering? Well, I, uh, I actually enjoyed it. You um, did? Yeah. I mean, they, they had enough social sciences to rub the rough edges off of the engineers but, but in the core curriculum. But um, I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed South Dakota mines um, and um, That's right, teaching students to, you know, to look at each other's shoes and not just their own, you know. Oh, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I cannot imagine a university that is just focused on science and, and engineering. I mean, I, I well, we'll come to uh, that in a Here's an interesting thing. It had a wonderful music program. It had more all-state musicians at South Dakota mines than any other university in South Dakota. Um, and so it was all these A and B students in high school that, you know, wanted to be in music and oh, math and engineering. And so it was a great group of students, and I enjoyed it very much. I, I, was, I loved being a, a college president, yeah. Well, now you're a university president. Yes. So well, there was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and, and very briefly, the experience there and the experience in Oxford, mm-hmm. did that prepare you to come to a university like UT El Paso and see, wow, it's different here, or it's, oh, there's similarities. I, well, what did you bring from those two schools here? It's not only those schools. It's a different, it was a variety of life experiences. To, so I've been a member of Congress. I've started a couple of companies. I've served on boards. I've, I've you know, been the secretary of the Air Force, which is yeah. a much larger management responsibility and so forth. But so it's all of those experiences that you bring to this current job. And I think that's true of anybody. I mean, you're always my I tell I kind of try to explain it this way. When my I, my dad was a pilot, he was also a mechanic and he, he worked a lot on his own cars and things. And I remember as a kid, do you remember the snap on tools guy? This is so. This is probably dates both of us, Keith. But there used to be traveling salesmen that came, and and he had this big red truck like the Snap-on toolbox, you know. And he'd stop, and he, I guess he was a pretty funny guy because we knew to. We'd always sit on the porch and watch our dad, and they'd be laughing and leaning, and he'd probably have his, you know, he's a salesman. He had his jokes and things, and then eventually at the end of this conversation, my dad would pull out his wallet and he'd buy some tool, you know, and then he'd put it in his garage in his tool one of the things I noticed was he, he didn't necessarily need that tool today, but he kept putting tools in his box. All right, I, and always prepared, like a Boy Scout, always prepared. So you, you over time, you gather tools in your box, and right. you may not need them today, but there are times when you do, and then you you have them in your box. And so I've I've, um, my life has not been as a specialist, although I'm, you know, well qualified in my field. It has been branching out as a generalist in different fields and bringing those skills to the university. Well, that's good. So you've got all these tools, Heather, and you've got now this great palette, mm-hmm. the University of Texas at El Paso, 
and the city of El Paso. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and northern Mexico, and, mm-hmm. and then a little bit of New Mexico. I mean, mm-hmm. this is now your territory. This mm-hmm. is your palate. Mm-hmm. What has surprised you in the 15 months that you've been here? That, why, I wasn't really prepared for this, but then digging in the toolbox, you say, well, there's this, this that, and the other. Like, what example <laughs> of something that cropped up Apart from COVID. I was going to say, other than a global pandemic. Yeah, no, I... I mean, really... Yeah, that that um, caught us all pants down effectively. But what is it that you could say from the institutional point of view? What is... Well, gosh. One of the things that maybe it wasn't a surprise, but the depth of it has impressed me, is the deep commitment of the people who work here to our mission, to the students whom we serve, the region that we serve... There are places where you go to a job, you know, and you put food on the table. This is a place where there is a sense of purpose. And the people who are committed to it are deeply committed to it. And that showed up when we developed the strategic plan and in emerging from that, that it's not an aspiration, it's a reality and a responsibility that UTEP is America's leading Hispanic-serving university. That's, that's a truth, and it's also a responsibility, and it's one that, that the faculty here and the staff take very seriously. And I can tell you that's something that's transformed since I came. Hmm. I came in 1971, all right? I had maybe, I can think of Alonzo Flores, right? One, one undergraduate student in my class that was Hispanic hmm. and none of the others. Now it's an inverse of that. And this mm-hmm. transformation has been very exciting. Mm-hmm. But you're listening to a new program on KTEP called We Are UT El Paso. Our guest is the president, uh, doctor. You're a professor. Yep, it's amazing, isn't it? No, it's, it's, <laughs> do, do you have the title of <laughs> I professor? Actually, they have, people just call me Dr. Wilson. But, but uh, um, yes, I actually am a professor with tenure, which I think is just amusing. Okay. Well, there you have it. That's who we're talking to. <laughs> so, Heather, you've just told us how you've got this toolbox. You've got the palette. What are the things that you see here now that have been so good already that you want to sort of just give them a gentle nudge Mm -hmm. and carry on with the excellence and other areas where you really want to sort of bring your attention to focus and and push us in in new directions, Mm -hmm. perhaps? We've just completed the strategic plan, are now shifting to implementation of that plan. And a good strategic plan is deeply rooted in what the university is um, and then what it could be. So it's aspirational as well as connected to the past. And, and the thing, one of the things that came out of it that was really clear is, this, um, is that what are our strategic advantages? Things that are hard to replicate. And they're things that, as you describe, have really developed over the last 30 or 40 years. A strong sense of place, you know, leveraging our place that's so unique, both beautiful and at the meeting point of cultures and states and countries building on the unique diversity of our people, which is also an unusual thing to have to build on. And demonstrating our culture of care, that's one of the things that also makes this university unique, I think, and this community is it's a very warm and welcoming place that is is not a sink or swim kind of attitude. It's It's a culture of care here that is reflective of the people who live in this region. And then finally, deepening our engagement and establishing new partnerships. This university has a responsibility to the community that we serve 
to impact positively the community we serve, its health, its education, um, its prosperity. And so those are things to build upon. Our mission is what drives it all, and so we'll be focusing on continued student success, so in teaching and learning, and then advancing discovery of public value, so our research mission, as well as impact in health, prosperity, and education. I could imagine one area which takes an awful lot of work and connectivity. And I think based upon all these tools in your box, you've got a lot of this connectivity, is internships. Mm. All right. I mean, Mm. it's not something I thought about. I've got five children. Um, Three of them graduated from here. One, we needed him out of the house, and so he went to NMSU. (laughs) And the other wanted out of the house and went, went over to Virginia somewhere. And... I've, I've, I've understood that very bright people sometimes don't get the opportunities in one institute that they do at another. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got a grandson who's just gone off to, to Stanford, and I'm just amazed by how they nurture and, and almost farm out their students mm-hmm. in internships mm-hmm. to really make them progress up the ladder much more mm-hmm. rapidly than we could at the moment. Well, it's also more important now than I think it was when you and I went to school because the ability to apply what you've learned to complex problems in the real world with people from other disciplines is so much more important. And getting that experience through internships and co-ops and co-working experiences is one of the best ways to do it. So we will be increasing what I call engaged learning learning in the community and in internships, but also in all kinds of other ways. Engaged community research is another way to, to think about really complex problems. And it's the biggest advances usually come at the intersection of disciplines, not always at the core of disciplines. And so, so creating those opportunities to work together across disciplines and in the real world is one of the things that I think should distinguish a UTEP education. I, I think what you're saying is is a good friend of mine who just retired recently, Russ Kinelli. He was a professor over in material science, and he was always going on about interdisciplinary, interdisciplinary. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't come from that background and that school, and I've always thought of myself as, you know, just a not stand alone, but, you know, what I need to collaborate and I know how to, mm-hmm. but it's not part of my psyche mm-hmm. to be interdisciplinary until I mm-hmm. absolutely need it. And what you're saying here is that we've got to start out understanding these interconnections that are needed. Or often there are analogs from other disciplines that can help you br- make a breakthrough in your own because they've seen problems from different perspectives or they've seen something work. If you're uh, you know, thinking about how you solve or understand problems in biology and how those, how those experiences might address an issue that a metallurgist is and, are seeing. But if you look at what are the big problems of the 21st century, whether it's climate science or energy or advances in health and medicine or clean water or food production, all of those things will involve multiple disciplines. Yeah, 
huge problems. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. And you and we often encourage people to specialize and mm-hmm. specialization today means something completely different than it meant in nineteen oh, thirty, you know? I um, couldn't agree more with that. I mean, kind I know of hyper spe- my... we've got people who can spend their entire careers looking at one kind of molecule, you know. No, don't so, tell me. Yeah. <laughs> if not one kind of molecule, one group of the periodic table. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but then my, my grandmother was a great aficionado of roses. And spent decades, you know, crossing roses and getting funny color roses, and it was her life and her enjoyment. And, yeah. and for me, it's it, it's not been a career so much as a wonderful hobby. Yeah. And there are people like that, but that's a dying breed because mm-hmm. you can't get money to study hobbies yeah. quite so readily anyway. Yeah. I don't yeah. think. Um, one of the things of interest that I just found out very recently is what well, I've known about it, but never really took it to heart. We're in the middle, apparently, of a, of a big region of space exploration. Yes, we are. I mean, yeah. Richard Branson going up there with his virgin. I mean, that was just the classic right, advertising campaign, really. And then our Jeff Bezos down here in Van Horn. But it's not new. I mean, uh, Goddard came here with his uh, with his rockets to test, and we're yeah. using you know, Von Braun was here too, right? Yeah, yeah Von Braun <laughs> and White Sands Missile Range just to the north of us. Yeah. And so it's a. Uh, I think we're we're also in the at the start of a new age of using space for a variety of things. And part of it is the cost of going to space has come down so much. Mm-hmm. The cost of launch has come down, and then the miniaturization of things in space so that so many more things are possible to do from space that weren't possible before. So you uh, you have so many more opportunities to connect to what happens on in space to what we need here on Earth, and it's an exciting time to be involved in it. And, and I believe you're on the board now of... Uh, Blue Origin. It's an advisory board to Blue Origin. Yeah, lovely. And and that actually came about because about three-quarters of the engineers at the Van Horn site for Blue Origin are alumni of UTEP. They came out of our aerospace program. So, So in fact, the University of Texas at El Paso provided you with a new tool. That's right. (laughs) Right, and that's That's lovely to know. So our, you know, as the university president, one of my responsibilities is to try to connect us to the things going on around us. Let's talk a little bit about the role of the university, as I see it, Mm -hmm. as a sort of cultural focus Mm -hmm. for the region, Mm -hmm. the city, Mm -hmm. the dinner theater, the orchestra, Mm -hmm. all of the artistic things Mm -hmm. that if the university wasn't here, it's difficult to imagine that there would be that facility. it's, It's one of the things that makes El Paso a wonderful place to live and raise a family and work is that you have this university with all of the great cultural events that surround a great university. And it, it you know, we went, to, we went to see Nonsense at the Dinner Theater just recently. Just for, and it's just fun to be able to have those kinds of entertainments. And of course, there's ath- athletics as part of that too. Um, um, the chance to just, you know, go, go have some popcorn and cheer on the miners at the Don Haskins. And um, that's <laughs> wonderful. I, I, I do that. Uh, when I first came, I, I couldn't get into American football. It just takes too long, and they're always stopping, <laughs> right, as opposed to what you would call soccer. Yep. But the basketball is pretty uh, – that's a so strong fun. point. And, you know, just uh, even during the end of the pandemic when uh, the music department had started having concerts at noontime every Friday, and it was a different musical group, and the word kind of spread, you know, person to person, and by the end of that um, – 
by the end of the semester, there was quite a crowd out there every uh, every Friday at lunchtime just listening to a concert. It's just oh, I, I missed all that. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. tell me then, how, how do you, because I do detect in a university, and this is no different from the others, that there's this concentration on funding. Mm. The, the people who get big dollars, big bucks, are the people who can go out and get funding. And I've mm-hmm. done that over the years myself, so I know it. Mm-hmm. My salary has been very augmented because of the fact I've gone out and got grants all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yep. But people in the fine arts, uh, in music, in art, uh, and, and other locations, history, mm-hmm. I mean, wonderful history department. Mm-hmm. And how do we realign perhaps resources with understanding that, as in Britain, Mm -hmm. For a professor there, it doesn't matter where you are. Your salary is pretty similar. Hmm. What sort of attitude do you have to changing the resources uh, to to facilitate the arts? Well, the largest college here is liberal arts um, with respect to student enrollment. There are differences in the United States that are not the same as the United Kingdom on on salaries for by discipline, and that really has to do with supply and demand. And the, uh, you know, if you're a... PhD in metallurgical engineering or mechanical or electrical engineering, um, the salaries are higher. Oh, absolutely. But I I find that somewhat, I mean, I've taken advantage of it. Mm -hmm. But with a new president coming in, is there something that you can do to raise the level of those who aren't so fortunate to be able to go out and get funding? Uh, Well, one of the things I do like about UTEP is the culture of every tenure or tenure track faculty member is expected to advance knowledge in their field. And also to develop, you know, getting a grant proposal to the National Endowment for the Humanities and earning a grant from them is a big deal, even if that amount is smaller than it might be from National Institutes of Health. But one of the things that's changed in higher education in the last 30 years, and it's not unique to UTEP, it is um, nationwide, has been a decline in state support taxpayer support for higher education. And it's I've seen it happen in every state, and its legislators are under pressure to cover a lot of things. And I think over time, they've looked at higher education and said, well, you know, they have sources of funds from other places. They have Pell Grants, or they, have, they can raise tuition and fees, which we've done. But the reason tuition and fees have gone up in America faster than the rate of inflation is because of declining taxpayer support. And increasingly, that's a barrier to access to a college degree. And as a community, we benefit when everyone is educated. And so so keeping college accessible to everyone who works here is really important, or everyone who lives here is important. Uh, And it's nice to hear you say that and articulate it because... That is, in a sense, perhaps more important to many of the people out there with families now thinking about what is the future for my family. Mm-hmm. Um, and wanting to make sure that you can afford college. And, and public universities have played a really important role in this country, um, certainly starting before the Second World War, but particularly afterwards with the GI Bill and the shift from you know, college not just being for the rich and the elite, but for everyone. We've come to the end of approximately 28 minutes. I'm not totally sure. Um, we could go on for another 280, all right, because it's, it's important, I think, for our population to listen 
to to our leaders, and you're our leader, with a toolbox. So I've got this now in my head. I expect to see you tinkering with cars at some stage. But Heather Wilson, President of UTL Paso, thank you very much for being here today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And the audience will be back next week. Take care.